Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff. I'm an astrophysicist and pop culture enthusiast. We're back again with another episode from Hawaii at the SACNES Conference. SACNES stands for the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science. In today's episode, we are featuring another keynote speaker from that conference. You're going to be excited because you might remember her from last season where she was talking about giant pouched rats. Dr. Danielle Lee is a mammologist, science communicator, and assistant professor at Southern Illinois University. Get ready to hear Dr. Lee tell us a tale of how dangerous it is to handle giant pouch rats, how important it is to have a good team, and how these stories are being told in new ways. It was great to interview Dr. Lee again, and I hope you enjoy our interview. Welcome to Spark Science, where we share stories of human curiosity. And I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff. I'm an astrophysicist. I love pop culture, and I also love SACNIS. I'm obsessed with this organization. They've done so much for me. Um, and I'm here talking to one of my favorite mammologists, Dr. Danielle Lee. And I talked to her last season at Geek Girl Con, so please check out that episode. But I want to welcome you, and thank you for talking to me again. Thank you. Thank you. Have you been? I've been pretty good. I've been pretty good. I've talked about your research so many times to people because it just blows me away, this idea of these giant, adorable, pouched rats that save people's lives. So for those of our listeners that haven't listened to that past show, can you give me a little synopsis about your research? Because I think it's amazing. Thank you. I study rodents in general, and one of the rodents I study are the southern giant pouch rats of Tanzania. They're a part of the African giant pouched rats, that's a genus of rats that live throughout sub-Sahara Africa. There are about five different species. So giant rats, and when I say giant, they can get up to 65 to 80 centimeters, about two and a half to three feet long from nose to tip of tail. They can weigh one and a half to two kilograms, so up to around two to five pounds. Adults, the heaviest I ever caught in the wild was a 1.87, so that's almost, it's about a two pounder or so. He was huge. He was beautiful. So they're like they're like kittens, basically. They're like this, they're cat size. Cat size, yeah. Yeah, okay. cat size, like yeah. cat size. He was beautiful. He was a bit of a um, melaniform, so he was real dark. And because I, I don't catch too many of them that are like this really super dark chestnut. Yeah. They're brownish. Some of them have like orange kind of little patches in are them. Are they nice? Are they like No, friendly? they're not nice. Or, <laughs> they're so mean. Really? But they look oh, so nice in your videos. I have a thumb injury. Oh. You see? So that's I have so a... so awesome. It was August. It almost just looks like a crease in your thumb, but it, that's a straight up cut. Oh, that's a straight up cut. That A rat took me down. One rat, it took three grown men to get that rat off of me. Oh my and God. And I do not have feeling in the face of my thumb anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> They are not nice. They're so adorable. They do, they do look they cute. Are so, they are cute. Yeah. They have such charisma, but they are wild animals. Okay. <laughs> and I, I forget that. They're huge. They're very strong. Like, one of the challenges I had working with them when I started my postdoc was figuring out how to handle them because mm. they're not a common species. So I was like, how do you handle this rat? Like, <laughs> You know, like you go. You don't through, have classes on that. Yeah, you know, like for white mice and white rats, you know, like you take animal care classes. They say grab them like this and secure them like that. And the reason for that is because you don't you want to stabilize their spine because you don't want them doing that. Some of that doesn't work. One, they're so big, and no one really talks about 
like what it means to be a woman doing this stuff because on average many women's hands are smaller than men's mm -hmm. I could not put my hand fully across it so oh handling God. it was hard just the nature of my hands I have small hands I even think of that yeah nobody they're thinks, huge I guess nobody yeah. thinks about that so yeah. like and then you can't put your hand around their neck because one they're wild animals and they can reach back and bite you and bite you and they don't let go so it's like okay how do I do this keeping them safe and keeping me safe and not freaking out their back legs are really powerful like if they they could remind me of how kangaroos I was just gonna say like a kangaroo kicking you in the stomach a pouch rat they can jump without a running start up to six feet in the air what they can bound they can bounce just that fast six feet well, that does save their lives, I guess. That does save their lives because <laughs> when they need to get away, they'll go up a tree. And they'll scamper and go. Like, they're fast and they're gone. How do you train something like that that's so wily, I guess? So the training part has to happen with first and second generation. You can't do that with the wild ones. Oh. So they breed the wild ones, and it's their offspring that you have half a chance. Yeah. Of training because then you're able to handle them when they're young and get used to handling and doing that but the wild ones no you can't train the wild ones yeah yeah it took them a while to figure that out so yeah. what was your first catch then bring me back in time to your first uh, rat was it that bite that you showed no me? I was three years in the game I was just like look at me I'm so awesome yeah my reflexes are so fast look at me I can like boom boom like being all cavalier I mean there's blood everywhere it was blood everywhere actually <laughs> it really was it's a lesson I was tired that day and I had already turned it over to my team to take measurements yeah and I wasn't there but this rat was they needed someone to hold the uh, measuring tape to their nose because we were taking nose to tail measurements Oof. I've done this a million times yeah you hold it and not a big deal so how we handle them is we're not handling them they're in a sheath so they're inside this cloth rip resistant so sail fabric they look like little pastry bags mm -hmm. and actually the design is based on what they use for lab rats decapicones okay so yeah, ouch. That's a real okay. thing. So they're based on decapicons for handling them. So decapitating yeah, them. Okay. Yeah, but that's what they call. I tried the industrial strength decapicons, and the company was like, "These will work on your rats." And I put a rat in it, and they literally ripped that thing to shreds. They're like, "This is not working." This took me into learning about. I had I went across campus. I was still at Oklahoma State then. I dug into what I call my woman spaces, my woman knowledge. I was like, you know, I need someone who knows materials. Anyway, so I went to the home ecology department. Yes. And I went to the fashion merchandising professor. Like, I knocked on doors, and she was like, okay. I was going to order fabric online. I was like, do I just get And canvas? you were going to, like, make your own pastry bags. Yes. And so I told her what I needed. I saw some things on the Internet. And she literally, she explained the material. She's like, you want this kind of material. This is rip resistant. It's super strong, super industrial. She literally created a pattern. She traced it out. She hooked me up with one of her star students, a PhD student. <laughs> I paid her to make these special bags for not just handling the rats, but getting them out of the traps. That was my other problem. I was like, catching my first rat. I can catch them in a trap. We use those big live traps, those tomahawks. Mm, okay. Those live traps, really big. They like, go in there. And does it, it look like the ones people make for like raccoons and yep, stuff? Yep, it's okay. the exact same trap. Okay. I just made an oversized one. Oh. That literally snugly fits around the square thing. And then they go in the bag and we close it off and we hold them in, like we're holding a pastry bag. Like yeah. They're in there. Then we can tie it off. And until we can get ourselves together, we can at least keep them safely in this bag. So it's still awesome. breathable. We can weigh them in this bag safely. Yeah, I mean, you should patent this. 
you and this woman. Yeah, we had it out. Yeah, it was like so holding it. I was just like, we, yeah. That's just for getting them out the bag. Yeah. I can't do things like get a good look at them, check right. their condition. So then we had to take them out of that big pastry bag and put them into a much smaller fit to their body pastry bag where there's more space for their nose to come out. And then a couple of vents on the back so that I can take hair samples and take body measurements yeah. and check their condition. And it was when it was in the small little bag taking measurements because more of their nose comes out. So they can't, it's muzzled enough where they can't open their mouth up wide, but they have narrow nose. So, you know, it's like little pinchers. It yeah. not take much. And that day, I knew I was tired. I was holding the tape measure by the nose. Oof. And usually, I have really good reflexes. Normally, yeah. I'm like, boom. I yeah. can read an animal and I can move. But Are I you was, good at that slap game with, like, the kids do? When I was younger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and I was tired. And I just I wasn't listening to myself, and I really, really should have. And I literally turned my head for half a second. Someone asked me something. I was like, what? And it happened. <laughs> Blood everywhere. It literally all was, over the pastry bag. All over the pastry bag. All over the rat. So part of the pictures, you could see blood all over her nose. And I'm like, She's that's my blood, not it. hers. That's not hers. Blood all over the concrete. Because part of it is they're rodents, so their teeth grow Oof. and they overlap. Oof. She had me in there good, so I couldn't just pull my thumb back. Oh my god! I'm still surprised at me having the presence of mind. I remember when it happened. Yeah. I went. I had to go with her. Like I remember the rest of my body physically surrendering to go with it. And so I literally I collapsed on the table because we had her on the table. I collapsed and I had to go with her. The other three grown three grown men. Let the three grown men had to get and they couldn't and like pry her mouth. They open? had to get her mouth open. Oh my god! They had to get her mouth it, open like an alligator, like yeah. a crocodile. It felt like forever. I'm sure it was only like ten seconds, but right. it felt like forever. They could hear everybody screaming like, "No, no, open, do this, do that!" And I remember at one point I was like, "It's fine. I don't feel like really the pain did go away. Yeah. Like there was a point." where the pain stopped and all I felt was pressure. And it was just a pulse because she was like repeatedly just bearing down. Mm -hmm. They finally got her off. I refused to look. Unless I was one of the mamas, so one of the senior secretaries. And this really traumatized her because she was always like, how do you do what you do, girl? Yeah. And I was and like, like, it's, it's fine. 100% safe. And like, I, did, I was like, I'm fine, mama, I'm fine. I, I'm so good at this. And the day I'm showing out, I think I knew it was bad because I saw her face. Right. She was just like, you're like, I'm pretty sure my thumb is gone. That's exactly what I said. So they were tending to me, and then they were trying to be kind of like, it's fine, it's fine. And I remember I was like, there's a hole in my thumb. Yeah. I, ac I accept this. Yeah. I'm going to have a great story to tell. I'm going to have to explain. I was like, I imagine it's half moon bite. Right. And it, I think that was the negotiation laying down, like, across the table. It's like, yeah. self, there's a chunk missing in your thumb. Yeah. This is us now. This is our life. Yeah. And then by the time, like, so they're pouring water on it and they're cleaning it. And I'm just like, fine. And so then when I finally looked at it, I was like, it's a chunk missing. I know it's not. I was like, you all are being nice. And I looked, and it wasn't. Yeah. But what had happened <laughs> was that whatever was inside my thumb was now out. Like, it looked like a can of biscuits had erupted. <laughs> <laughs> I love that analogy so much. It was white. Pillsbury pop. She cut me down to the white meat. Ooh. It was bad. And so I'm just like, uh-huh. And I remember at that point, I had an assistant. I said, go to the car. Go get the ibuprofen. Yeah, please. And he grabbed it. And he's like, uh-huh. And like, he's like, where? I literally hit the bottle. I was like, ah! <laughs> so they wrapped, they bandaged me up. And so I'm sitting around. I go to the shops. Go see my friends slash my, my Tanzanian family. And they're like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. And so I'm sitting there, and it was a gentleman I'd never seen before because there's a little cafe next to it. 
And I was like, oh, he's handsome. So I'm like, he's flirting with me. <laughs> You're like, it has nothing to do with this blood running out of my hand. And he grabs my hand. He's like, Dada, come here. Yeah. He looks at it. He's like, come. We walk 50 paces. We go to the uh, Duca Lodawa, the pharmacy. Okay. He orders some stuff. So I got iodine. Let me tell you. In the zombie apocalypse, your first aid kit needs iodine. Mm. So I just so we he was like, we'll try this. So I poured iodine on it. And I feel nothing. Oh really? I I have no more feeling in this stomach. It's what? gone. I can't. I can't. You know, flipping pages. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's basically like you have one of those rubber things over your thumb. You don't even feel anything. Yeah, but yeah. but also because I can't feel it, I can't I can't actually gauge if I got a page or not. Mm. So it's really really hard. That's, it looks really good though. Yeah. So iodine dries it up enough. So iodine. So iodine. One yes, it kills things, kills germs. Yeah. But it dries it out, so mm. it wouldn't juice it. You know, it's the juicy that caused the infection. Right. And then, and the professor who's my host, he was like, well, now we wait. I was like, wait for what? Well, you got to wait and make sure you don't have rat bite fever. Red, whoa, whoa, whoa. Rat bite fever. Rat bite fever. Tell me more about this rat bite fever. It's, a, it's in the, I can't think of the fancy name. But it doesn't matter. It's, it's in the same category with like cat scratch fever and mm-hmm. all that stuff. It that causes, isn't just a song. It's That's, not just a song. It's actually a bacterial infection Ooh, where ouch, you get okay. like fevers and. Okay. Maybe the iodine helped. Maybe it didn't. Well, no, that's kind of one of those, no, it wants, because it gets into your bloodstream. Oh. It's a bloodstream. I know nothing about biology, that's why. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. You just got to wait it out. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science, and we're talking with Dr. Danielle Lee about the dangers of handling rats and also the importance of having a good team. And I tell people that in the field, I don't make too many stupid moves because if I do something to make myself sick or hurt, I can't collect data and I'm there for such a short time. Yeah, how long are you there for? Usually I'm there for like two, two, three months. And so a week is, that's a large percentage of my research time, especially once I'm finally in it. The thumb thing, I didn't really get my thumb, couldn't really use it for about a month. Two weeks I had to keep it covered for sure. Yeah pain and all that other stuff where I could finally do stuff, I wasn't approaching 100% for a month. It took about a year before all the tenderness really went away. Jesus. <laughs> that's like just so, that's traumatizing, but you're still doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me what you do in the field, because you're saying you're in there, you're there yeah. for like a few months. Nothing I do is without a team. So my team is perhaps the most important thing. And so number one most important person to my team is this gentleman called, named Shabani Lutea. Okay. He is the world's authority on giant pouch rats. So usually when I give talks about pictures that you'll see me handling the rats, taking measurements, you'll see a gentleman with me, that's Shabani. Okay, got it. Uh, So Shabani is the person who's taught me every single rat that's gone on to be trained, he caught their parents. Like he's responsible for the, like the success of all of this because his ability to find those pouch rats and catch them. Like he's psychic and he can feel where they're in. So first I gotta get my team together. Mm -hmm. So I get my team together, Shabani. Um, and then I have a couple of assistants who are assisting with like with the stuff, transcribing, setting things up. And we go out into the field. And the field for us can be either an open field, like a shamba, okay. which is a like an ag field. Okay. So where you grow crops or a farm. Or it can actually be in the towns, like in people's yards, mm, okay. like like along the canals or where the outhouses are and where they're collecting trash. And the 
rural areas where there's fields, I can actually lay grids out, like every 10 meters, 20 meters, and I can put grids out and put traps out to catch animals. In the towns, because I'm working in yards and stuff like that, it's harder to do. So once you, like, once we catch them, so we put the traps out, and this is where Shabani's expertise is really keen. He's just like, this spot, like, we're gonna put them here, and we're gonna put them here. And I get it because I work with other species, so learning from him and just trusting his, his intuition and his tracking skills, we're like, okay, this is where we go. But then also, we also talk to people. Like when we're places, you know, talking to people, going like, hey, tell me, does this rat bother you? And that's where my assistants come in. My other two assistants, one, um, I always have at least one other assistant that's a student who speaks English. Okay. And so I need someone who's trilingual, so they speak English, they speak Swahili, and they speak science. Yeah. So I need them to kind of translate that. And so that person, they help us talking to the folks in the neighborhood, asking them, have you seen this species? Does it bother you? How does it bother you? How long has it been a problem? And so, yeah, especially when we go into the towns, the townspeople are also part of my research team unofficially. Yeah. And, you know, just at those spots. How we're able to keep track of our traps there is we just entrust the traps with those people. Can we put this on your property? Well, yeah. Can it call us if it, get, if it trips? It's not a pure grid because we can't set up a pure grid when we're talking about people's property. Right. And just the nature of how houses are made there, it's like mm -hmm. a big jigsaw puzzle. Right. And so it meanders, and so like you put them, and we can't put them out there. They put them out at night. They're like, we'll, we'll set it out tonight after everyone's gone to bed. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the kids will be like, toy, things, <laughs> moving around. Right. So then we catch it, we get it out, we use our big bag. I can get them out the bag and I can handle them, but it works better if minimum two people handling the rat and then another person who's a scribe. Mm, okay. And so that's how what, it works. what does the scribe do? The scribe is writing down data, so the morphometrics. So we're calling out things like mass, nose to tail length, body length, hind foot length, the size of the ear. We're collecting specimens like fecal samples and hair samples. And so the scribe is preparing the test tubes and writing those notes down. If we were doing behavior experiments, then we'll take them back to the facility and let them acclimate for a day or so, and then we'll do some behavior tests. On my last couple of trips, everything's just in the field. I take morphometrics, so we'll dust them with this uh, colored UV reflected powder. Ooh. And then release them. And so it means we have to follow them a little bit. So that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Um, so I mean, the, the more you're talking, I just, I, I literally in my mind am going through this like mystery novel. You know how like you're a detective and you're trying to figure out this mystery of the giant pouch rats and you, you have all these informants, which are the townspeople, yeah. right? And then you're using this technology so you can follow track. It's, to me, it sounds like a mystery novel. It is a mystery novel because just figuring out exactly how and where they live. And so we dust them, then we release them, and then we have to, we're going to, we don't want to freak them out by following them too close because right. then they're just running away. But we want to know at least where they went. If they have dens, like you said. Well, they're going to go somewhere because pouch rats will, do not like to be above ground at night. Like, mm. that's not their thing. Like, they're sun sensitive. So we at least want to halfway know where to search the next day. They've been dusted with this very bright powder, so we can follow their tracks. And I can be like, okay, you visited here, here, and here. But I want to know halfway where you went. I want to be like, okay, at least we're starting over there to mm -hmm. start the mystery. And then that's what it is. So my goal this last time was to at least get a few candidate animals. So maybe not catch a lot, catch a few, and just track those closely. I had some special equipment, thanks to the National Geographic. Oh, 
yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, you're like one of their. Yeah, I'm um, an emerging uh, explorer. Yeah, so I was able can. to borrow a boroscope, so it goes underground and looks so it's articulating head. So what? a lot like the plumbing snake, and I can go down and look inside, and I can record and look inside the tunnels. And I was looking, that's what I was like trying to confirm, do they live here and what does the nest look like? So a nest would have things like evidence of bedding, food, and feces, and I didn't find all of that. Mm. Now I know they were there because of the fancy powder. Like, but they I didn't stay there right I think they did stay that long. Oh. I just don't think I was able to look at The mm. camera can only go so far. Okay. They're there. The most fascinating ones, underneath was huge. It looked like it was a bunker once upon a time. Mm-hmm. It was wide open. The size, imagine the size of this table is wide and it's deep. It was wide open. The powder was everywhere, so I know the animal was in there. But the animal's long gone. Driver ants, they're akin to army ants, had moved in. And I saw them above ground, which was scary enough. Mm-hmm. I looked underneath. I thought it was thousands of ants. There were millions of ants. What I saw above ground, which was still like a, a line this wide, just moving. just So like a like foot one. wide, you're saying? Well, half, about half six of, inches wide. Okay. But, it, but it was flowing. Ugh. Not like a few ants. It was flowing. Like liquid. Like liquid that was ants. And that was above ground. And I went in there, and it was even more still, still going. And I saw pink powder. That rat, long gone. Yeah. And I don't blame because those those ants were just picking apart. If I didn't have that equipment, I wouldn't have been able to confirm that at least I know it spent time there. I would have thought, yeah, the ants are a problem, but... That seemed intense. Yeah, that seemed intense. And I'm like, oh, this might be why sometimes we find so many abandoned dens. Mm. Maybe. I don't know if I saw that. I leave. And never come back. Welcome back to Spark Science. We're talking with Dr. Danielle N. Lee about how animals make a living and how digital media can help science become more accessible. For our listeners, what is the mystery? I want to know how pouch rats make a living. That's really it. For me, that's the job of natural history. Mm-hmm. So I want to understand how animals make a living, where they live, how they live, what's life like for them. I use local indigenous knowledge and folklore and people's personal interactions. Even if it's from a nuisance perspective, I use all of that information to try to piece together What's the community interaction? So in ecology, community is how different species interact with one another in a particular place. And so the traditional ways is like what eats what. That's one way to think of communities. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but another way is what also competes for space. Mm-hmm. What also moves it? Like what vexes it? What does it work in concert with? Out in the ag fields, there's not a lot of human interaction. Mm-hmm. But in the cities or in the towns, there's more human interaction. And so now the community is not just what they're doing in a traditional natural system, it's also how they vex people. Mm-hmm. And so my big question, whether I'm working with the pouch rats in Tanzania or field mice in the States, is I'm curious to understand how nuisance rodents make a living across urban gradients. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you'll have the same species that can successfully live in a rural spot or an urban spot, but they make a living slightly differently. Mm -hmm. And so I explained to people is, I'm doing a scientific study of city mouse and country mouse. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. That's the mystery for me. That's a, for, that would be a good children's novel, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, it's a great one. It's been around since Aesop. Yeah, yeah. Da, da. Yeah. But yeah, but like applying that same thing to this really big charismatic rat. That's saving lives. That's saving lives. But yeah. here's the thing. 
that's in a very special context. Mm-hmm. In the meanwhile, those rats are literally bothering people right here and now. Mm-hmm. They're literally potentially, you know, a problem, you know, with disease transmission or mm-hmm. raiding crops or compromising pantries. It's asking a lot for people to be excited about a rat that saves lives that's also complicated. Their lives right here and right. now. And I, my research started because I was charged with how to do research that contributed to that project to make that project have better information so that the training part could go better. And I still care about that. But as I was going to get rats, I realized every single rat in that program was a nuisance rat. In other words, they community of people, they all came from pretty much the same, what we would call a single street in a neighborhood. Almost every rat came from two or three key streets. Really? Yep. Because I asked Shabani, because again, where did every rat come from? Mm-hmm. Shabani. Yeah. He knows where every rat came from because he caught them. They were all nuisance rodents, yeah. every single one of them. We've built a, a really great program that's globally high profile, but no one's thought about who's paying the cost of that program. And that's townspeople. They're like, you keep coming here and you're getting rats and training them, but the rats are still here. They're still bothering us. And that really made me pause and go, okay, my research needs to matter now and not just later. They need to matter for these people here and not just people all over the world who might get their lives saved by landmines. So they're like, yeah, they removed landmines and they detected tuberculosis, but if that same species is spreading potentially rat bite fever, leptospirosis, or parasites, mm-hmm. are those lives less important just because it's not a fancy disease that we all know about? I don't think so. Tell me more about the Nat Geo emerging explorers. And the second thing, is there any like representation of animals or scientists that deal with animals in pop culture that's either really good um, representation or really bad? So National Geographic Society, they've always funded expeditions and explorers. There's a couple of ways to get access to that. You, so you write a grant to either do the science or to do the storytelling or to do the archiving. And they have a program called Emerging Explorers, which is akin to like a fellowship program. Mm -hmm. So like they have these named individuals whose work that they award and celebrate. And it's the Emerging Explorers. So it's not a traditionally written grant. It's truly like a named or a selection. That's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. I I think I saw the announcement. Was it last year that you got it? I got it in 17. Okay. 2017. I'm old now. The years passed so fast. I agree. Same. (laughs) 17 to here is still one year in my opinion. I still, I write 2009 sometimes. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. That's how old I am. I've caught myself writing 17 still or 12. Yeah, 12. <laughs> I don't know why 12 stands out. I, I've done the same thing. I don't, I don't know what happened in 2012. But yeah, so, so the, that's the Emerging Explorers program. They have some that focus on teaching, some that f- focus on like ecology or, you know, storytelling or photojournalism and all that. So like these different little pockets. Yeah. And so Emerging Explorers can be any of those kind of categories, except it's just a selection program. They care very much about putting us in situations where many of us can organically work together. Mm, And so encouraging that collaboration and interaction. And so the resource, a lot of it can be not necessarily tangible. Have you encountered then, because I think you're a really great science communicator. I've seen your talks at the TEDx and you're gonna be a keynote speaker here at SACNAS. Mm -hmm. But have you seen in media 
good versions or good representations of what you do or like really terrible representations? It's a lot of terrible ones, and I don't yeah. want to give those any more attention. Okay, let's, so, but I'm let's thinking go good. The good ones. Or what could they do that's good? You know what? I'm really excited about what's happening in new media spaces. I think new media is really where it's at. Going back to Net Geo, they have someone new on their team, Raywin Grant. Okay. She's a predator ecologist. Okay. And she's been I think doing of the movie Predator, but that's yeah, not what like you're talking about. She studies about. bears. Wow. Bears and lions. Wow. Okay. I, I'm loving what's happening in new media on social media. You or mean like, like digital media? Digital media. Okay. Like, you know how, like, how now Facebook is doing TV like stuff mm-hmm. and how, like, and Instagram stories. Instagram stories. But okay. now they're, so many of these platforms are beginning to shoot their own little mini show. Ray Wing Grant is great. Jason Ward in The Birding. Afro Herper, who's here at this meeting. Okay. Like, she's another good one. This new media and, like, doing their own little shows in their programs, like, it's doing a really good job of demonstrating what's it like for, you know, ecologists in the field. These are all black people. The idea of having these black experts as the head of these little nature shows. Right. Talking about that. I, I actually really love that because I was just at this conservation film festival's Jackson Wild and, and I had a wonderful experience. But the one thing I noticed was all the movies, I shouldn't say all of them, but many, many of the movies were the host was a white person, right? And it was mostly white males, but sometimes it's white women. But they kind of just drop in to the Sahara or they drop in to, you know, India. And I'm really worried about that. So right? here, but I, I'm worried about it. But here's the thing. I know that there's content being created by mm-hmm. science communicators and scientists of color. They're creating content, mm-hmm. and they're just distributing it directly to their readership mm-hmm. or their followership. And okay. so, like, they're doing it, and then I, my hope is that they do get tapped. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to Ray. So Ray was working at the American Museum of Natural History, and she got tapped. And then she's now part of the Nat Geo team. They're doing great stuff. The content creators are out there. They, oh, they really are. are. Thank you so much Thank for you. talking to me. It's always really great. Thank you. This was so much fun. We'd like to thank Dr. Lee for taking the time away from the conference to speak with us. You can find out more about Dr. Lee and her research by following her on Twitter at DNLee5. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded on location in Honolulu, Hawaii at the National Sackness Convention. To learn more about this amazing national organization dedicated to supporting faculty and students in STEM, go to sacnas.org. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Robert Clark, and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Zarek Coakley, Julia Thorpe, and Hannah Clark. Script support was done by Aaron Howard and Ariel Shiley. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at SparkScienceNow. Thanks for listening to Spark Science.